0: I hope you're all well. Thank you so much for the lovely emails and Instagram messages you've been sending me about the podcast. I genuinely can't tell you how nice it is to know that so many of you are listening and enjoying it. (laughs) It's honestly the best feeling, so thank you. Despite risking sounding like a broken record, can I ask you to leave a five-star rating on iTunes and a little sentence about why you like it as it really is a big help? I'm sure many of you will already follow this week's guest, and Ed had a dramatic career change, and I think this might be a good one for anyone who's ever thought about changing jobs and following their passion, whether that's into the world of food or not. Um, but yeah, hope you enjoy. My guest today is Ed Smith. You may know him by his pen name, Rocket and Squash. Ed gave up a high-flying career in law around six years ago to pursue a career in food. He is the author of the hugely popular and award-winning website Rocket & Squash, which is sort of a smorgasbord of delicious things from recipes to restaurant reviews and cookery news. He has now written two cookbooks to much acclaim and regularly writes for a multitude of publications. In 2015, Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards named him Best Online Restaurant Writer and shortlisted him for Best Cookery Writer, which is pretty impressive. Welcome, Ed.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So you were working as a corporate lawyer working at Freshfields until 2012. Tell me, did you grow up dreaming of becoming a lawyer, or was it one of those jobs where there was sort of a straightforward, but by no means easy, career path?
1: My mum was a, was a solicitor, and she specifically told me not to be one.
0: Okay, <laughs> when I
1: started thinking about it, but if I ever went, you know, put my head back to career development chats at school and stuff, it's. One of a, few, of a handful of professions that came to mind, partly because mum was one. You know, what else do you do apart from what your parents? Sure. What do you know apart from what your parents do? And yeah, I did quite well at school and well at university, and it just became an obvious career. Route. And one of the good things about law, which is a great career for those people that love the subject matter, is that there's this obvious career in there. You know, you, you work as a trainee and then you become a qualified lawyer and and you work up and up, and then hopefully become a partner. That's the, that's what you expect. And I think I like to think I'm relatively creative in th- some things, but I'm also massively risk averse. Oh, really? In others. And so that's probably why law stood out to me, and, and, yeah. and rather than a bit more a left field career choice.
0: Also, it's as one of those things at university, you can you can see you either study it as a degree or you do a masters, and a sort of yeah, there's a path that you can follow. Whereas lots of other careers are sort of how on earth do you get started?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's um. I think I wonder whether it's changed now if I was sort of 20 years younger and people uh, coming out of university now are a bit more ambitious to their own thing and social media makes people think they can achieve anything rather than go on a career ladder like, like I did perhaps it would have been different. I I don't know. Yeah,
0: that's so true. There have been such big changes. I wonder whether traditional paths are actually being overlooked now in
1: view of other things. Maybe I think, and also I, I think that if I was younger, uh, Whether it was 18 or 21 or 23, I might have made, at that age now, I think I might have decided I wanted a career in food at that point. In a way that I didn't back in 2000 or whenever it was that I made those career choices. I feel feel like it feels like more of a legit career now.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: That whole rock star chef thing people in the press food food is a really interesting topic for a lot of people and that's one of the reasons why i made a career change i'm sure and, and maybe it would have been on my mind uh, yeah younger as well
0: also i i was very impressed when i was sort of researching you because i think i think it's quite gutsy to be working as a lawyer yeah and then you know have the salary and sort of not in a blatantly materialistic way but sort of you have the trappings of what that Salary brings to your life, and so to walk away from that, I think, is quite brave.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, I probably thought I wasn't walking away completely from having the salary. I, in fact, I know for a fact that I just assumed that a couple of years later, I'd be, you know, earning the same sort of yeah. uh, decent <laughs> thing. And, and it's, but didn't we all? <laughs> yeah, I know it's a shame, isn't it? But actually, I think what it did was having worked for five or six years, and at the time not having any responsibilities, it gave me the freedom to say to you know, take a bit of time, reassess what I want from my personal life and from my professional life and jump in. And it was quite a risky move. It was also, I've said that I'm risk averse. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I am quite risk averse and it was quite a big move, but there were some soft padding underneath, I think.
0: Okay. And we're going to hear about that in a bit, but let's pause there and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: So I found I found actually a lot of Thinking about a lot of things, things quite difficult because there are so many answers that you can give to everything. Yeah, actually, my mum and dad have been uh, staying with us or in London the last few days, um, seeing our son. And I asked mum to cook something on Monday night. I did buy her the ingredients. Okay, but it did suddenly like firm up that actually spaghetti bolognese is this exactly this kind of dish that reminds me of my youth. It wasn't something we had all the time, but there were. Iterations of it, you know, chili con carne in the the classic sort of spag bowl plus red kidney bean and a bit of chili powder. (laughs) uh shepherd's pie, cottage pie—all these things basically start with with a 1980s spag bowl. And it does remind me of home. And Mum actually standing in our kitchen cooking that was quite as firmed up my response to this because it's like, yeah, that's that reminds me of of a youth.
0: Yeah, that's Um, a good one. Does she have a special? A special recipe?
1: You're not people always. I love it when you listen to podcasts and uh, see TV programs and people talk about sitting on their nonna's knee, yeah. you know, <laughs> podding peas and stuff. And and mum's a great cook and a great entertainer. Uh, but I had a very kind of uh, Delia Smith upbringing, I think, and Justin Dimbleby, Those were the kind of books that she read. There, how to put on stuff for friends and simple normal food for normal people in the in the 80s yeah and um so spag bol was not an italian ragu you know it was whatever dried herb was in the was in the cupboard and, and some mince and some tomato puree and maybe some tin tomatoes With how delia said probably well or just how it things <laughs> happen and evolve and i think that it also is a dish that i enjoy doing now but adding embellishments that that take it away from that initial stage and make it a little bit Refined isn't the right word because it's just a nice family meal, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Can it ever be refined? But if anyone could do that, I reckon you're the man oh, for the job. Very much. I wondered, when you had the realisation that what you and most lawyers were working towards is to become partner and you realised that wasn't what you wanted, did that realisation come from the job not being something that you were fully passionate about? Or was it the life of a partner at a law firm that you realised wasn't for you?
1: I think it's a combination of, this is like uh, sitting on a psychiatrist. Um, I think it was a combination of realizing not just that I didn't want to be a partner, but I didn't want to be someone working towards partnership. It's an incredibly difficult thing in a a, a city firm. You really give up your life uh, for a while, if not ever. And I just sort of came to realize I didn't want to do that. And that's quite a strange feeling because I'd always wanted to be someone who had achieved you know yeah. whatever profession i'm in but at the same time i i sort of came to realization that i did want to do well at whatever i did and that whatever you do you have to work hard so it wasn't a question of not working hard maybe it's the subject matter that you're working on uh needed to change and about two years before i left law i had started writing rocket and squash as a, as a creative outlet okay and i definitely wasn't doing it to 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 change profession I was doing it to make sure that I that I cooked every week and I went to restaurants every week because that's what I would enjoy doing and I wasn't doing it and being slightly OCD I needed that that thing to make make that happen (laughs) um but I think what it made me realize was that there was a different industry or a different subject matter that maybe I should try to turn my working life
0: yeah so yeah that's such a good point you're not afraid of hard work and and it's nothing to do with that it's just if you're going to be working that hard it might as well be towards something that you're yeah sort of
1: and there's a, there's a whole load of things it's not it's you know lots of my, most of my friends are still lawyers and i don't see anything wrong with that if they enjoy what they're doing yeah and i just didn't want to spend my life doing financial re- regulatory reviews and uh <laughs> oh,
0: they sound and so they're, interesting they're a lot of fun a for bit. some
1: people but, and also but it's also it's a service industry it's a service industry for people with very high demands, and I think that just sort of made me wonder whether there's something I could do that's a bit more creative.
0: Yeah, and and that dreaded phrase work-life balance. I wondered, working for yourself, do you find that you're actually working as much as you were? Work-
1: oh, I mean, that's the thing is, I, I'm I'm almost certainly working as hard, if not harder, than I ever worked. Yeah, in my seventy-hour weeks as a corporate lawyer. Like the um, I, I haven't had a weekend for a long time, partly because I made it dug my own grave with doing something that re- involved uh, reviewing the weekend papers for, Oh yes, <laughs> for, a, for a blog posts every monday but also just because when you're self-employed you you are your accounts office your hr your your pr department and everything else in between you can never really stop working and my nature is that i can't really switch off thinking what else i could be doing yeah it's, when it's in fact stressful. i should be having a holiday or a weekend so I failed.
0: (laughs) No, we won't phrase it like that. (laughs) Let's talk about the second Desert Island dish, and that's the first dish that you learned to cook.
1: Which could probably have been spaghetti bolognese as well, but no, I think actually I couldn't tell you the very first dish I cooked or you know what I helped mum with first, but I'm one of four boys, and I realized at quite, I reckon quite an early age, that if I helped mum with the Sunday lunch I didn't have to set the table. I didn't have to do the washing up. Uh, yeah. So that's why I gravitated towards the stove.
0: It's a good reason. And I
1: suspect that as well as helping mum, you know, occasionally make crumbles or whatever the pudding was, I'm pretty certain I took control of gravy early on.
0: I mean, that's a key component. Where
1: it is. It's essential yeah. to, a, to a good roast. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I say the first thing I ever made, initially that would have been, you know, mum's way was a bit of bisto and the there's the boiling water from the carrots or something okay. like that but i think that it sort of I evolved that over time and taught myself how to make gravy with flour and, and and the stock from the chicken and and evolved it after reading books and watching tv and and um by then i'm sure i could lots of other things but the gravy things always it was always my role i think and really quite a small effort comparative to to having to do the washing up.
0: Yeah. And it's one of those things that's kind of a small effort, but big reward in terms of everyone always talks about the grave, you don't know. (laughs) So as you said, you started your blog when you were still working as a lawyer. And I love that you say that you first wrote it anonymously. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I started writing it when I was, I think I must've qualified as a, as a solicitor. So I've been at the firm for a few years already and, you know, and technically grown up, you know, and I just felt that this was in the peak age of, of restaurant blogging in London. It's sort of 20, t- 2009, 2010. All the newspaper critics were really worried about these people writing online, taking their jobs and their influence. Um, all, the, all the restaurants were jumping on bloggers as this really important thing without really knowing who was reading it, if anyone was reading it. But it was for a certain section of people, quite an interesting media. And I think, for whatever reason, I thought I'm not going to put my name on. It. I didn't really want anyone at work to know that I was doing, that, as if anyone would be reading it. I mean, <laughs> it may have been, but uh, so I, yeah, I just thought anon- anonymity was one thing that was appropriate. And also, I, I think that many people who have blogs and and now that's probably Instagram are kind of, and I count myself in this kind of introverted extroverts.
0: Okay.
1: So of course, there are people who want to promote themselves from day one. But I think a lot of people are able to sit behind a laptop or a, or a phone and project a version of themselves that maybe they have never been quite so comfortable with in person. That's and, so interesting. And um, I'm sure that was one of the reasons why I was anonymous as well. I like to think I've got an opinion, but I'm not going to stand on a on a stage and shout it without people wanting to telling me they want to hear it already. And I think that's and yeah, that's yeah, because that is
0: quite I... a scary thing to do, isn't it? Because you could it could. Be embarrassing and go wrong.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. It also just it's um like I said, I think I, I do I do think there's a there's an element of of not of just what there's a safety behind a computer screen or a or, or a phone that means that people can be something slightly different to what they're used to being in normal life.
0: Definitely and and I guess the written word you can yeah be a version of yourself.
1: I was relatively unusual as a twenty eight year old man okay. blogging about food uh, in 2010 I think I'm um, Ryan's saying that the majority of people around then were female mm. doing that and I was maybe conscious of that I don't know why uh, but certainly when I uh, came out and put my name on the, uh, <laughs> uh, on the blog a number of people were very surprised that I was male
0: because of how you'd written it or just merely by the fact that you had a blog
1: I think I think a bit of everything, there's an assumption, but I think mostly an assumption that someone who's got a blog that's named after two vegetables, that's all white and quite calm, that is a food blog, full stop, is possibly female. I mean, there were plenty of opportunities, had they read all my stuff to find out that I was male, I was not that anonymous. (laughs) It it was interesting that that was a reaction of a lot of people, either that they thought that I was uh, a lot older or female.
0: Yeah. That's very interesting. I don't really know what to say about that. (laughs) I
1: know. I don't think it means anything. I don't think it means anything at all, but it's linked to the anonymity.
0: So you did leave your job and you went to study at Westminster Catering College for six months. Was it important to you to get some proper training or was it more a bit of a chance to get some breathing space and figure out what your next
1: move would be? Both of those things. I think that I wanted to... I'd intended to write a business plan whilst at Kitchen College. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to start a scalable food business, sell it for 50 million pounds in four years time. And I'm just going to write that business plan now because I haven't had a chance to do that whilst working. <laughs> uh, obviously that didn't happen. I also was wondering what parts of the food industry I wanted to work in, whether it was a restaurateur or a chef or a cookery school owner or things like that. And I felt that having a good grounding in classical food without having to do that, either working from the bottom up in the restaurant or just starting out on my own. Yeah, this was, in many ways, a, a safety pad as, and a chance to just try a few things.
0: Yeah, Cause as you say, deciding that you want to do something in food is quite a broad bracket, oh, yeah. and it's sort of the first step. But then, as yeah. you say, what are you actually going to do within And,
1: and uh, in, in a way, it was me painting over the fact that I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do. It's like, hey, mum, look, I'm leaving my job and I'm going to catering college. Uh, I've made that firm decision, but it didn't actually mean I knew what I was going to do. I still don't know what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, no, it's a very useful tool to be able to tell other people you're doing it. I just remember at cookery school having this sort of dawning realisation that maybe that was how I was meant to feel whilst I was doing my actual degree, where I was sort of excited every morning to learn what they were going to teach me. Yeah, yeah, nice. That is not how I felt at university. So (laughs) let's move on to the third Desert Island dish. And that's the best dish that you've ever eaten.
1: I found this really hard. I'm quite... I think I've got a good memory, <laughs> but I think I eat a lot of good food and I don't mm. think that I can identify a single dish or even meal that was like the best moment. There are a few like highlights and they often come to thinking about it. They're often from traveling abroad or going to restaurants abroad or on a specific kind of foodie pilgrimages. There's a whole baked celeriac dish at this place called Daniel Berlin mm. in Skorner, which is in southern Sweden which was amazing but it wasn't the best thing I've ever tasted and actually I'm not sure that the best thing I've ever tasted isn't in Britain and, and I was thinking about it more that in the last few years I've definitely had some incredible um, pieces of of meat like uh, aged beef cooked over over flames and just to perfection the taste of, of the most bovine thing you can imagine and grass and all the smoke and everything else in between and the marbling's amazing. And it's that kind of thing that I think sticks out now. And um based in Cornwall called Coombshead Farm, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. And Tommy Adams there raises their own pigs. And I remember having a mangalitza, which is a breed of pig, loin, which was unlike any other pork I've had before. And so it's that kind of thing. Also cured meats. Like I could sit eating on from Spain, uh, wherever you have it, whether it's in a restaurant or a market. It's um, that kind of thing is memorable.
0: Yeah. I actually saw you post some mortadella earlier I've on your got, Instagram. I uh, some
1: good here if you like some. So
0: you say that back in the back of your mind, you thought maybe you would start a product-based food business. If you were going back in time, is there anything that you would
1: do differently? Quite in, in life generally? or no. About food? <laughs> Sorry, that
0: was quite a general question. When you left your legal job right. and you embarked on this new career you say you didn't have a business plan is that something would you have gone back and maybe figured that out I mean that's or?
1: definitely a piece of advice I've given other people whether I actually would have done it there are there are times sometimes I think you know actually I, I worked in some restaurants after Cajun College just briefly really as stages um, but because I felt I was already older than most people starting out and I didn't necessarily want to be a restaurant chef I didn't carry on with that and there were times when i thought maybe actually i should have worked for two or three years as a restaurant chef but i was probably felt i was in a rush to go somewhere that i didn't know where i wanted that to be yeah so i didn't um and um and there were times when i think maybe i shouldn't have carried on writing a website i should have done that serious thing and started a business but then you know things happen and and, uh i I don't have too many complaints about what no
0: (laughs) no you can't you can't regret the website the website's amazing Let's move on to the fourth desert island dish, and that's your favourite
1: sandwich. I'm going to give another non-straight answer okay. to this, if that's okay, <laughs> because uh, I think all sandwiches are good, I so long, <laughs> so long as they're made freshly wow. and with love. We're using good bread, and that doesn't need to be sourdough. It could be focaccia, or it could be just really nice fresh sandwich loaf. But I, I don't know. I see. Have you seen the film Chef? Yes. And there's a moment in there where he makes a cheese toastie. Oh, yes. Which takes about four or five minutes, and it's you know really, really kind of considered grilling of a cheese sandwich, uh, and then he gives it to his son, who just like takes a bite and doesn't care. And <laughs> uh, but I really identify with that moment—not um, with the, the son not caring, but with um, we're with taking the time over making the sandwich. And I think that that that's the kind of thing I want. And the sandwich has got to have like it's got to have a, a flavour that goes beyond the. Bread and last. So whether it's a really strong cheddar or a really strong ham or something fishy, but also something crunchy and something acidic, and you know, I, I'm pretty happy to have quite a lot of sandwiches. But if those elements—good bread, good, good like key filling—and then something piquant and crunchy in it, then that's a that's a good sandwich.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> if you ha- if you were at a motorway service station, okay, yeah, and you to get a sandwich.
1: What kind of shop? Well, if I was at that? a motorway service yeah. station, then the <laughs> options are limited, and I would go for the the simplest thing. Okay, so like a uh, ham and cheese. Okay, you, know, you can't that's you can't really go badly wrong with that, and probably buy a bag of
0: crisps.
1: Okay, so to a put in answer. there as well.
0: <laughs> These are the questions. So, the the crisps.
1: Just to be clear, the crisps go in the sandwich. Oh,
0: we see. Okay. Yeah, yes. yeah. 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 I'm very much because
1: you want to get the crunch, and then maybe there'd be salt and vinegar, perhaps, or you know that kind of yeah that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: that is a good way to jazz up a supermarket.
1: Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only Anyway. <laughs>
0: So now I wanted to ask you about the supplemental feature on your blog, which you touched on briefly earlier, but it's something that really has helped you to gain recognition and stand out from the crowd. Tell us a bit more about what it is for anyone who may not know.
1: Okay, so supplemental is an element of my blog, which until recently, I posted uh, every Monday a roundup of the recipes in the weekend newspapers um in the last year i've had a baby and wrote the borough market cookbook uh, and i found it a little bit harder to do it every week yeah, but I'm that's doing, understandable we're doing i'm doing it at least at least monthly at the moment and you're right definitely the website rocket and squash was well well known and received before i started doing this but in terms of you mentioned what would you do differently or what if i told other people it, the problem with my website is that it covers lots and lots of bases and it's not necessarily one specialism. And I think that supplemental became a thing that it was known for because no one else is doing it. Um, and it's a useful tool for people who love recipes to to see that four or five newspapers are distilled and all their supplements over the weekend are distilled into one page where they can, they can click on three to the recipes that sound interesting to them. I'm not always complimentary, <laughs> although generally I am. Uh, yeah,
0: generally you are.
1: Yeah, I would th- I prefer to see the positives and things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it basically became a, a nice sort of review of, of things for people to to click through.
0: It's such a useful thing because, yeah, unless you sort of subscribe to all the papers, it's hard to see all of those recipes.
1: Well, I mean, having not done it, now I don't do it every weekend. I now see how many things when I then round you know, sum it all up and three or four weeks later, there's a lot that you miss. And it's, on the one hand, the papers were never originally designed for you to see every single thing. You, typically, they, mm, they only want you that's to be. Interesting. You know, the Telegraph would only ever want Telegraph readers to read their their stuff, and, and and it wouldn't matter that the week later someone else would do the same sort of recipe. But in the age of the internet, things changed a yeah. bit. and not get away with it. We all, we all, we all click through to lots of things. But yeah, it's just been useful for people to look at, I think. I've enjoyed doing it as well.
0: I'm guessing when you started doing it, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe. You weren't fully aware of quite how big a undertaking you were t- you were taking on.
1: I actually the first the first four times I did I did it for a different like an app that was that wanted to create content. Okay. So I was paid for the first time four times I did it so that was fine. Yep. And then <laughs> then they actually folded probably because they paid me. <laughs> uh, and I just thought actually this is quite a good idea and uh, it probably extended itself over time. It's actually gone up and down in size the, for the first few years. The independent, the independent on Sunday had a bigger food outlet than they do now, and uh, different papers sort of changed their food content or have changed their food content quite a bit over the last four years so it's it's not at it's most arduous at the moment
0: okay and it's 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 a really unique thing i don't, I don't know if anyone else is is doing that kind of thing, but i I guess it gives you quite a unique insight into food trends and and, and what's happening
1: I'm, I'm sure that over the last I think I've done it for four years maybe more it's given me definitely an oversight of not just the food that the newspaper supplements writers are are generating and thinking about and and, and maybe you can see if they read each other's stuff and it affects that but also quite a lot of the content in papers at the moment is cookbook Materials, so yes. extracts from cookbooks, and and then also chefs trying to get press. So their their PRs will 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 offer extracts of their recipes to the papers mm. as well. So you do really get quite a, a glimpse at what the trendsetters and or the sort of first followers of trends are doing. I don't know what that makes me, and whether how much that has affected what I cook. Mm. There's never a week that I don't see something that I think that's a great combination of flavors or that's a technique I haven't thought about, or that's a a niche area of you know Italian or Mongolian food that I've never learned about. And that's really great. It's come to my mind and come to my attention. And so for me as a personal thing, that's been the benefit of doing supplemental is that I I'm sure open my kind of, Horizons or, or or reading of of different foods and and it's good for inspiration in that. Respect.
0: Yeah, so good to find it personally inspiring because then those are always the things that then ultimately inspire other people. Yeah, the weekend supplements and I guess recipes in general. I feel like we're living in an age of I don't know. I guess food porn, and I wonder how many people read those recipes and then actually go home and cook them.
1: I don't know anyone who's done the actual. Statistical analysis study, of it? it. Well, yeah, it would either be good or depressing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's—I think more people cook from rest from supplement like the weekend supplements, than you might think. Okay. I suspect actually more people cook from the weekend papers than they do from cookbooks.
0: Mm, yeah, that's true. I I asked that because a while ago I came across something that Nicola Humble wrote in her book culinary pleasures where she told a story of how some publishers put out a recipe which extraordinarily used a combination of flavors when used together were poisonous and so they completely panicked recalled you know as many copies as they could but there were there were copies out there that they couldn't do anything about so they kind of just sat by the phone waiting for i guess and no their, one's ever yeah, dead bodies to arrive and no one yeah. no one rang no one died and so no one had cooked from it which i thought was really interesting uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of the second worst scenario.
1: I, I think. I think the, you know we we all know that as a whole, the population of Britain certainly tends towards convenience, and whether that's picking up a convenience meal or, or doing something that they do all that they make all the time. And I, you know, I do that as well. Whenever I finish a cookbook, I spend two weeks having jack potato and cheese, <laughs> or, or spaghetti Ooh. mayonnaise or just stuff that's really like it goes right back to your roots of of, yeah. of not trying and that's what most people do, although everyone's time pressed, but there's still people who use the cookbooks for whether they're learning, whether they just want a bit of inspiration and the ditto, the weekend stuff that I think it might be a very small niche of people that really pays attention to it and then cooks, but even those people that don't do it very often will accidentally, if they're Googling a recipe or if they're uh, just want something, inspiration for friends coming up for the next weekend, the chances are that the supplement they saw one or two weeks ago might be the thing that comes to mind and they cook from that.
0: Yeah it's very true and that brings us on very neatly to the fifth desert island dish and that's the dish you eat the most often.
1: I think that most often my fallback food here is I don't I don't shut we don't sit at the on a Sunday and, and read through the recipes that I've read through and think I'm going to cook this on Monday night, Tuesday Wednesday Thursday. I think because I'm living in a part of London where I can pop out the door to get groceries in a couple of seconds or I will be recipe testing stuff in a week that I don't want to think about. I often have leftovers. Um, so the nights when I haven't thought about what I'm cooking, which must be at least two times a week, it's so often I have a sort of a version of a carbonara.
0: When you say version.
1: Well, because because I'm very conscious that uh, the Italian <laughs> books would not call what I call these things carbonara. So they okay. might be, instead of bacon, it's it's wilted greens or... Often, it's often leftover greens, whether it's part of a broccoli or roasted cauliflower, roasted cauliflower leaves. and it, But essentially, the base is egg yolk, parmesan, and some garlic. You can't go wrong with but I, that. Do you know what? i just a garlic. I'm not even, not even sure garlic's supposed to be in carbonara. So that's the classic... Classic thing it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it's definitely not guanciale in it i
0: think traditionally it's the flavor of garlic but not oh, the garlic right? yeah so you sort of take the garlic out but you leave right. the flavor wow i there don't know
1: but, but yeah so it's whatever whatever <laughs> pasta shapes left and whatever things go to bulk out which might be might be a form of pork product but is often not
0: that sounds like a very good option let's talk about your books. Your latest book, The Borough Market Cookbook. I mean, I learned so much. I feel really ignorant because I didn't know that Borough Market is over a thousand years old. No, it's, it's,
1: it is quite an amazing story that um, there has always been a market on that kind of space next to London Bridge for over a thousand years now. Um And it's obviously changed quite a lot in that yeah. time, but they can trace things back to then and I think I think there was a bridge at that time I can't remember so that must have been a reason why the produce came to that part yeah. of town or oh, probably wasn't a town a thousand years ago was it but then there were other things so like in, in the 18th century the parliament ordained is that the right word my legal training is completely gone <laughs> Decided that Decreed? The, the creed. There <laughs> was an act of parliament uh, that meant that there always has to be a market in borough market space now um, for the community for the benefit of the community.
0: How great is that?
1: Well, it is great, and it's. I think it's something that the people who the trust, the charitable trust that runs runs borough market has taken a responsibility of really well, particularly in the last sort of twenty years as it's moved from being a wholesale space to retail. Uh, that not only is the outstanding produce there and a community of traders that have that bring amazing things to us that we can access very easily but they're really quite big on community stuff there's there's constantly community events whether it's weekly demonstration kitchen stuff that people can just go to and see for free there are kids that come and learn how to be market store traders they even grow they, there's a Bavarian the schools in the area grow produce and then once every few months come and sell it on a lunchtime that's and cool. it's like sort of seven-year-olds sort of shouting you to buy oh
0: my god buy their
1: pumpkins and try and sell each other it's quite fun. <laughs> that's adorable so it's, they really um and that's just a, a snapshot of some of the community things that happen there but part of the reason for that is that it's ordained that they have to <laughs> run a to their, uh, market there for the benefit of the community
0: that's so interesting and yeah there are 12 million visitors every year I think
1: I think it might be 16 million I don't know It's it there's a there's well, Ed, a there's... you wrote in the book it was 12 did I <laughs> and that might be that might be one of the essays that wasn't written by me uh but anyway the point there is that there are a lot of people that come through Beaumark every year and that's um it's a lot it's undisputable it's um it's a, it's, it's, it's a proper marketplace, you know? it's a meeting place for people yeah. and produce.
0: Yeah. And, and the book is a real triumph. It's got recipes and inspiration, but it also tells a really lovely story throughout the year. It's not a typical recipe book, but it must have taken a lot of work and a lot of time to put together. How long did it take you?
1: I've been writing for Borough Market for the last six years. Uh, it was the, my first, I think, ever professional commission as a food writer was was from Borough Market for their website and then subsequently their magazine called Market Life, which is great. And it's my most regular thing too. So the book took me a period of time in 2017, but I've been in and around the market constantly for a long time, well, six years, constantly meeting the traders and writing about produce and writing recipes that kind of meet the, the values of, of Borough and, and and seasonal cooking and seasonal market shopping. So, yeah, it took a certain amount of time, but I've probably invested quite a lot of other yeah. time in, in the place as well. Yeah,
0: in a way it's sort of been mulling over yeah, definitely, a, a definitely. longer than when you actually wrote it. We're on to the sixth Desert Island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish.
1: Unfortunately, because I now do so much recipe testing and recipe development I don't get to cook the same one thing all the time (laughs) so my actual go-to dinner party dish is the dish that I'm supposed to be testing that week for people or for whatever cookbook so actually last year in particular lots of people got to taste the stuff that was coming in the borough book okay which was good for them and good for me
0: now has that ever gone wrong because um, idea of recipe testing is presumably that sometimes, you know, it might not work exactly as you want. So has anyone ever had to eat sort of a Bridget Jones blue soup situation?
1: Yeah. I don't think there's ever been anything quite as bad as <laughs> Bridget's cooking. Although she's a, you know, she, used to, she lives at Borough Market, doesn't well, she? Well, so exactly. Uh, it was a very good reference. Friend of the market. <laughs> um, interestingly, I did, there's a, there's a recipe in the book which I think is a really nice autumnal one for mal fatty, which uh, means badly shaped and, and it's the kind of pasta ricotta pasta. Oh, yeah. A bit like Nudie. Okay, yeah, Nudie. But the name Malfatti means badly shapen, so you you don't have to make them look good. Ideal. Um, However, and that's with wild mushrooms and brown butter and sage. It's really nice. When I did those for the first time, I think I might have tested three different versions on the same night for um, a writer called Olya Hercules. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, now husband Joe, who photographed my first book, and uh, Olya's son, uh, Sasha and Sasha was about six, I think, and didn't like the food. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I don't think they were the best versions of that, of my fatty either. Also and they are also, also just, just a bit big. Like, it didn't shape them you know, shake them badly, but they are also too big. But
0: children are not shy about telling No, them. so it,
1: like it was a little bit of a, that's probably one of my least good entertaining <laughs> evenings for a while, actually. Which, so, yeah, I guess that's the answer is that things don't always go right when you're testing. Yeah, that's true
0: but I'm sure they've been way more delicious.
1: Well, they're better now as a result.
0: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's the whole idea, isn't it? So we have a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes where we like to find out the guest's most treasured cookbook. Yeah. So I wondered what your most beloved
1: cookbook was. I think that my most beloved cookbook is a book called Week In, Week Out by Simon Hopkinson, who is often cited as his book, Roast Chicken and Other Stories. Yes at some point was named the best cookery book of all time. And I think that as a result is often in lists by people and it's really lovely. And he's an amazing writer and a brilliant recipe writer, but his book week in week out is a selection of his recipes and columns. When he was the independence weekend, I think it was probably the Saturday writer. So it almost feeds into my supplemental kind of, yeah. thing, <laughs> it's got nice long introductions to to the food and then three dishes each time. So it's exactly like newspaper columns are. And what's amazing about it is that it's a really nice mix of, he, he's like French French trained kind of stuff. Him and Jeremy Lee and Broly Lee and stuff like that were big chefs in the late 90s, I guess, and early 2000s of turning turning food in London into a good thing. So he's got that kind of classic French bit, but there's also very eclectic global things there. And, and I think the best thing about Week In, Week Out is that it's from a recipe comes from there must be at least 15 years ago it might be 20 years ago but if most of those recipes could still be published right now uh. and they are definitely things that I would, I would if I if I didn't have to ever make a recipe myself ever again and I could just cook from a cookbook I would turn to that more often than, than any other.
0: Wow. What a recommendation. Yeah. yeah. I
1: actually think there might be, and this is not a plug and no one's asked me to do it, but I think <laughs> they, I think they might be reprinting it this year or next year and republishing it.
0: Oh, great. It's, it's super good. Okay. I need to get my hands Watch on out. that. We're on to the final Desert Island dish of the day and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island.
1: Can I give another non straight answer? <laughs> I'm can, very can, lenient. Can, can, can it be a last meal?
0: Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. So
1: I would start with i know it's a desert island so the sea is there yeah but there are a particular type of anchovies that i would really miss okay called um the calabrian anchovies called dombacate if you ever you see really expensive anchovies on a menu possibly those okay and just with some really good bread and some sherry and then i would have again fishy thing but you know um carabineros the very red prawns there's a place in Portugal in Lisbon called Cerveteria. That's not how you say it, Cerveteria. Uh Romero, and he's got these amazing red prawns just cooked on, on a planche with loads of salt and you suck out all the juice from the heads and they're delicious. I then probably have a good piece of aged beef cooked nicely. Beef isn't my favorite meat, but I think that, to know, I think if I'm going onto an island, I might might miss it. Yeah. With tomato tomato. Yes. Good, really good leaves from a nice... Know lots of tasty different leaves that taste of of something would be lemony like sorrel, and there'd be some mustard leaves and other bits in there, and maybe some potatoes. I'd have a cheese course.
0: I love the sound of this.
1: I'd have a cheese. I'd have Comte, some aged Comte, with uh, Vanjon. Vanjon. How do you say that? Which is that kind of fortified wine from the Jura, which is probably the greatest pairing in all of food and wine.
0: That's a big claim.
1: It's amazing. It's on if you ever get the chance to have. Really good aged comté and, and vanjan. You've got to take it. Okay. And then I would finish with a very small, thin slice of a dark, bitter chocolate tart and have a coffee with it as well.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be joining you. Thank you so much for letting us hear your Desert Island dishes.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: Anyone who enjoys a crisp sandwich is someone who's a good egg in my book. <laughs> Here ends another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, now's your chance. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co for the full list of episodes, plus the recipes I've created inspired by each episode. Loads more recipes, supermarket snoops, fridge files. It's all going on there. (laughs) And do come over and say hi on Instagram. I'm Margie Nomura and tell all your friends, the more the merrier. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. Bye.